Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is another one of these that was funded by the Greater Good Intellectual Humility Project uh, that Sari Concepcion and I have been working on, been really enjoying doing these episodes. And today we talked with Dr. Stephen Sandage, a professor of psychology and religion and theology at Boston University and the research director of the Center for the Study of Religion and Psychology there. He's also the director of research at the Danielson Institute. Uh, connected to Boston University. He has done a ton of research on so many of the most interesting questions to me in the overlap of psychology and religion. We move around a bit topically, but I think we keep a nice through line throughout. And I like to say who this would be good to share with, because it is so helpful for us when you share these episodes with friends and loved ones. So I would recommend this episode in particular to people who have struggled with differentiating themselves from their families, churches, or other groups. In other words, where do I end and where does my family begin as opposed to we are all one big enmeshed mess together. Also, people who are interested in the dynamics of healthy versus unhealthy spiritual or religious leaders. And finally, I'd recommend this episode for anybody curious about the different types of narcissism and how they show up in Christian contexts 
especially in different ways for men and women. That's kind of toward the end of our conversation. Uh, a really great question that Sari brought up. And I think that people will find that super interesting. Also just people interested in humility, because that is one of the through lines we have here, both intellectual humility and general humility. This was seriously a great conversation. So I am excited for you guys to hear it and we can just jump in. Dr. Steven Sandage, thank you for joining Sari Martin Concepcion and myself here for this conversation. I don't even want to say what it's going to be about. I know a few of the topics, but man, we could end up just tunneling and or barreling down one of these roads and not the other two. But here's where I want to start. You grew up United Methodist in Iowa. Now, my guess is that that would put you at a very interesting cross section of sort of middle America and American civil religion, this more liberal, you know, Methodist upbringing, but then in a, a flyover red state. And how did that sort of form you? Growing up in, in Iowa, United Methodism, there's a lot of those kinds of churches in small towns. I was born in a, in a pretty small town in Iowa. As I look back on it, I would say the churches of my early youth were kind of middle of the road. They weren't terribly liberal. They weren't particularly conservative. They were kind of middle of the road. And um, I was part of my family who got um, kind of a more intense dose of conservative Christianity um, in high school and college due to some family crises. Some of us wanted, I guess we're drawn to a version of Christianity that was a bit more intense to match some of the challenges we're up against. And mm. it, it's a great question because I do think I got exposed um, then becoming a candidate for ministry. The, the district group was more liberal. So it was kind of a crucible of being exposed to some different versions of Christian religion and not um, really understanding the whole landscape, but I think getting kind of curious about some of those differences. And um, it's been probably a lifelong journey of trying to figure out where I'm at in, in the middle of those tensions within Christianity. It strikes me that you're a bit ahead of your generational cohort with that exposure, right? Like I think about my son, who's three and a half. And he will necessarily be exposed to a variety of cultures. I will probably choose to expose him to a variety of Christianities. Uh, but at any rate, just just growing up in a completely connected Wikipedia world, you know, he's going to have a different experience than my mom and dad had growing right. up Lutheran, you know, right. Missouri Synod Lutheran or whatever. So is that your sense that like in, in terms of that exposure, you know, other colleagues and people of your same age play were kind of playing catch up over the years. Yeah, in other words, that it's maybe it's maybe sort of unique to get exposed to such different versions. And when I went off to seminary, I went to an evangelical seminary, but took intentionally took some courses at the more liberal United Methodist Seminary um, nice. in town. And and I didn't see a lot of my seminary cohort mates doing that per se. I do think of my, I'm in my 50s, I think of my generation probably, especially from the Midwest, didn't necessarily get exposed to a lot of religious diversity. And um, I, for various reasons, have been drawn towards towards that. In fact, spending the first half of my career teaching at an evangelical seminary and then moving mid-career to um, really a, a quite liberal 
United Methodist School of Theology. I have a question about how you got into the overlap of psychology and faith. I want to give you the opportunity, but you can say no, because this stuff can be personal. But you mentioned a more intense form of conservative Christianity to match some family crises. That language, you know, as a psychologist in training kind of hit my ear of like the way that our religion. So if you want to include that, I'd love to hear it. But of course, you can keep that private. Yeah, no, there's there's a couple of things out of that. I mean, one is, I've written about this some publicly. So I was coming up in the 1980s in Iowa where there was an agricultural crisis where land prices went crashing down. And, and it was um, a pretty systemic crisis in a lot of parts of the Midwest at that time. So um, my dad was in agricultural business. He was not a farmer, but was in that field. And um, there were many farmers who were killing themselves. Uh, wow. No one directly in my family, but it was uh, a pretty horrible crisis during it was bleak. that time. Yeah. So I was an adolescent during that time, and I think our family started to be just sort of aware of the vulnerabilities of life. That even though um, we weren't sort of on the economic precipice ourselves, we were really seeing it firsthand, and so. That exposure to tragedy and vulnerability and suffering was pretty influential on my family. There was also some worldview differences in my extended family, you might say, between some members who were pretty intrigued with the sciences and psychology and those um, those more kind of progressive forms of thinking and yeah. uh, others in the family who had more traditional religious understandings and, and political understandings. I came of age sort of seeing those differences and conflicts and tensions. I, I became clear in graduate school in my own doctoral program. Uh, I went to seminary, then I went and did a PhD in psych, and I had this um, realization later in my doctoral studies that I was trying trying to integrate psychology and theology to heal some family splits. Wow. Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Yeah, but I became sure. aware of that. And I realized that I'd had enough family systems training at that time to realize I was not going to succeed at that task. That, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bad news for you there, buddy. <laughs> I, I'm laughing about it, but you can imagine it was quite a... Um, sure quite a difficult realization to come to. Um, But I, I realized I'm not going to heal those splits. So I might as well stop working on doing it for that purpose. It was kind of the unconscious motive. I, I really experienced quite a bit of emotional freedom once I came to terms with that. And um, some of my research and writing sort of took off after that. I think um, I had been paralyzed for a little while, but because of feeling this kind of unconscious burden to sort things out in my own family. The the integration of psychology and theology became about something else, you know, not not about healing my family. I had a lot more freedom and energy to move forward with it. Another thing I don't need to go into depth here because I've talked about it before, Steve, is that I got into psychology through The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, trying to understand not not actually family splits between my parents and I, but certainly plenty of loved ones around the 2016 election and and all of that stuff. And, and finding the psychological language, basically the, the questions and answers that height was asking and answering, I realized were closer to the questions and answers that I was actually thirsty for Mm -hmm. than the questions and answers that theologians 
were asking and answering. Mm. And so that really resonates with, with my story, but that's also really interesting that you kind of took it to then inevitably, uh, if you learn enough about that and, and four years of, of doctoral studies were more than enough, I probably learned enough just reading the righteous mind to learn <laughs> that I was not going to be able to like, at least not make much of a dent very quickly, let's say yeah. on, on these sort of big, tough questions. And I'm always talking with clients about sort of the limits of our control and what is outside of our control. Like th just that as a, a rubric, like a, a really helpful sort of lens or question to ask ourselves to keep from spinning our wheels and essentially just mm -hmm. wasting our energy. So it's interesting to me that you talked about, it sounds like you had kind of an energy surplus then once you were sort of freed of that. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that uh, because I actually think that's a really common experience. You know, I really think a lot about anxiety as a, such a core concept in both psychology and theology. It's, it, it'd be one of one of the key things I kind of go back to from an existential perspective. And mm -hmm. when when we're sort of preoccupied with something that we feel a ton of anxiety about at some level, like healing family splits, right? Um, but we're not really well positioned to accomplish that, which isn't isn't always immediately clear to many of us. It is kind of paralyzing potentially because there's yeah. so much riding on it, and we probably can't quite find the the position or the inroad to fully accomplish it. And so, I think for me, once I sort of surrendered, you know, to use a spiritual and psychological frame, surrendered to, I wasn't going to accomplish that, that I was going to yield control of that, right? Um, then I think it did release some energy to channel my, my strengths and my efforts in other directions, where I could both be more effective and uh, also maybe didn't quite have as deep primal stuff riding on it, right? So I do think it becomes interesting and important to figure out what to do with our anxiety and <laughs> and how to find the right channels for sublimating and how to um, do what we need to do to sort of uh, surrender or yield in the areas that we need to yield. Yeah, Dan, for you, I think that was saving, that's saving all of Christianity, right? <laughs> yeah, this is a story I've told less often. It might be worth telling again here, Steve, because I'd, I'd like your take on it. But I, I had an extremely valuable moment in, in grad school, maybe a couple years ago now, where we were supposed to do this like mock therapy session with a fellow student. But I was like, I told my my classmate, I was like, I'm just going to tell you real things. Like, are you cool with that? And she was like, yeah, go for it. And I just was talking about whatever I'd been thinking about and, and the podcast and all that stuff. And, and she was like, it sounds like you feel like it's your responsibility to save Christianity. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, I mean, first of all, I think a lot of theologians actually do carry that. I think, I mean, I think about systematic theologians, yeah, right. uh, you know, trying to explain sort of like a cohesive vision of God and the universe. And, yeah. and like, maybe if people would accept this vision, you know, how many wars could be avoided and how much pain and, yeah. and all that stuff, but also 
like, could we save the church, this institution that's value that's been valuable to us, that's in decline and in, at least for us mm-hmm. liberals, it's in decline and all of our churches are in decline, <laughs> you know, maybe not in the sort of the global South or majority world, but like, yeah, right. I, I don't know if you have anything to add to that or if that sort of brings up any memories for you. Well, I mean, I, I had said it's important to kind of get the anxiety oriented in the right direction. Maybe it's also fair to say we all need to get our, our grandiosity, yes. you know, sort of calibrated and yeah. uh, oriented at the right level in the right direction. That's part of it as well, isn't it? You know, not, It's funny not- that sometimes it's conscious and sometimes it's unconscious, though. Right. Oh, like yeah. you have the anxiety and the weight and the of the burden of whatever is like deep in there uh, from yeah. family or or what have you. But then yeah. bringing it to the conscious level for you was transformative to your idea of vocation. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have awareness that that's what I was working on. I think whether it's through spirituality or psychology, you know, that if we can get some awareness of what are these deep things that we care about that matter to us that we're trying to work on, but then to grapple with, are there parts of this that are are going to destroy me or not be that healthy? That's That's also equally important. And that's part of what humility, I think, is about is not that I I don't have anything to offer or, or there's no strengths or there's or, or the idea there's no valid grandiosity I don't I don't buy into that but humility can save us from the unconscious forms of narcissism that um, aren't really of benefit to uh, ourselves or or to the world. Daryl Van Tongren, who I'm sure you know, has been on yeah. uh, twice in the last year or so. And I don't remember on which episode he said it. Maybe Josh will put a link to both of the Daryl episodes in the notes <laughs> uh, because he's always worth listening to. But, you know, yeah. his his book on humility is fairly recently published. And, and his line that he used in the episode that really kind of stopped me in my tracks was humility is about being the right size. Right. So like you were saying, it's not it's not like a false humility where we pretend we can't do things, but really we believe we can. Yeah. Nor is it like a self-hatred or self-abnegation. I really don't have any abilities to affect these changes. It's just like I have I have this much ability to affect this much change if I do if I use this much effort. But in in some sense, thinking that you could no offense, Steve, solve your family splits through your mm-hmm. own sheer effort of integrating psychology and theology was that was actually that goal was outsized of your capacity right. given all the factors, right. you know? And, and so that is a kind of humility to yeah. recognize the limits there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in our research center at Danielson, we, we talk about the benefits of both healthy narcissism and humility. And there's Ooh, a tell place... me more about healthy narcissism. Oh, right? This sounds like something I'm in the market <laughs> for. <laughs> You're in the market for it. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's a little dangerous, Daniel. This is a great product. You're really going to enjoy this one. It's, uh... yeah. <laughs> so healthy narcissism was Heinz Kohut, the psychoanalyst, um, his, his idea. And actually, he's a great case study who um, saw Freud leave Europe, watched him depart, fantasized about being the next Freud himself, yeah. um, escaped um, the Nazis himself to the U.S., and and then denied for a long time that he was developing a new version of psychoanalysis because he didn't want to he didn't want to take on Freud, even though he fantasized about being Freud. But Kohut developed this idea of healthy narcissism that 
he worked with a lot of patients that had unhealthy narcissism. And right. he believed that there was something, um, something like a healthy self-esteem. But what, what he really put forward too is the desire for greatness. I mean, he had Genesis 1 read at his funeral um, as a Unitarian and Jew. Hmm. He he believed that there's something about being created in the image of God that is uh, pulls us towards wanting to make a significant difference in the world, and that that's mm. a beautiful thing. So that that kind of narcissistic libido was another one of his great terms that we have. Um, Dude, stop, uh, <laughs> stop using these phrases. That Dan, it's just like, <laughs> yes, this is... <laughs> You're literally just adding bullets into my ammo belt. <laughs> no, please, please continue. Sorry, sorry. So, <laughs> You've just made the podcast better, but Sari's friendship with me worse, essentially, is what's okay. happening here. I'll see if I can circle back around, Sari, and help you out somehow. Feed me something else, see if I, I can balance it out. But um, Kahat's idea of this desire to have a significant impact in the world is part of being in the image of God. Now, he also then spent his career noting that if you don't have the right relational, emotional development, that sort of nuclear psychological energy is going to cook your goose, so to speak. It's yeah. so, so it's all about having the right sort of containers around you to channel that in a constructive way so that my desire to make a real impact doesn't mean I can't see the good contributions you are making. You know, the unhealthy narcissism turns competitive and one up, one down, and I have to destroy you so I can be something. And we have obviously too much of that going on in our country right now. So um, it, was, it was really a kind of a beautiful relational idea that it's okay to want to do something great. And he also was very big on, you know, if you gave a good speech at the conference, um, your friends come up and tell you, hey, that was great. Don't don't talk it down just to appear humble. That's that's not hmm. that's not good either. Uh, so I think it's a great concept to hold alongside of the benefits of humility that they can kind of work in tandem. I want to just ask you, Stephen, it sounds like your integration mindset has always been, it seems like so frictionless. And that's not always the story I hear from other people with taking like the stitching together theology and psychology. And just to ask one more biographical question, is that true? Or that's that's how I'm perceiving it. Is that true? Or has there ever been points of friction or I'm even hearing in the way you were talking about how once you let go of the, like, I'm not going to save my family in this way, and now I know how I can use that energy. Like, I just want to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, thanks for reflecting that back. No, it hasn't been frictionless. And I actually don't desire to hold that up as an ideal. I think that there mm. are is some good friction between any kinds of differences that are are part of the value of differentiation is that there are some points of tension and murkiness and ambiguity, you know? So, I mean, I coming out of that more conservative background, and actually when I went to seminary, I got more conservative. I think the United Methodist background was a little bit broader than what I got in seminary. So I got a lot of heavy duty systematic theology, authorial intent, biblical hermeneutics, a lot of sort of intensity about having the right theological frame. And even though I, during seminary, remained interested in psychology and was doing some psych work and you know, all that, I did feel a bit inhibited about psychology because I, I was sort of 
uh, again, not fully aware of it, but I think I was afraid that if you really go into psychology, you're going to sell the spiritual farm, so to speak. And yeah. um, so I, I tried to kind of privilege theology, even as I started my doctoral program, I, I was ambivalent about psychotherapy, even though I was going to be getting trained as a therapist. I really felt like you needed to privilege theology to sort of keep psychology in check. Mm-hmm. So there was friction there. Um, uh, I eventually got to a place where I was um, more committed to a kind of e- equal relationship between general and special revelation and theology and psychology. But that also that felt like a leap of faith uh, that came about over numerous years. So, But I still think there's valuable tensions between theology and, and psychology, and that that's part of what why I like doing interdisciplinary work because um, it can it you know the other discipline can kind of call you to an account. So first, I'd like you to define differentiation. You just you just mentioned that in your answer, really important concept for us therapists. But for a lay audience, how would you define being differentiated from other people? So differentiation is a, is a really multidimensional concept, so kind of hard to summarize, but I think it starts with how do I orient the anxiety of differences? Do I um, tune in to differences in the world? And how do I deal with whatever tensions that produces? So to be a, a differentiated person really necessitates I have some, uh, I'm developing some good emotion regulation skills, capacities to to navigate intense emotional dynamics, and that I I develop um, the relational flexibility to be aware of who I am and still tune into the uniqueness differences of of people I'm relating to, like the two of you. And so someone who is, as an individual, is more differentiated, tends to have a capacity to manage the anxiety that comes up about really tuning into differences. I don't mean like glossing over them. I mean, actually tuning into them and having a kind of uh, relational flexibility in the classic differentiation terms that also involves um, an ability to connect with others as well as navigate autonomy. So some of the great spiritual writers have not used the term differentiation, but have named the ability to um, be in community and the ability to um, handle solitude as important spiritual capacities. And we, we may have our preferences out of personality. You know, do we like to be with others? Do we like to be alone? And it's fine to have those personality preferences, but differentiation involves um, my ability to kind of be flexible in those areas. It also comes out of the intercultural uh, literature where it, it's been used to reference the ability to be aware of cultural differences and navigate them more effectively. And some of our research has, has been about that. And I've, I've highlighted the individual capacities, but this is a systemic concept too. So some families, some congregations, some societies are more differentiated than others. It has to do with how a system navigates differences and although systems could differ in their preference for hierarchy, there is a bit of a tendency that uh, systems that are pretty low in differentiation tend to rely on a lot of hierarchy to navigate differences. Yeah, you think about the military, which by design 
needs to be not very differentiated. It yeah. is like an elaborate apparatus for accomplishing very specific goals in the real world that like a handful of leaders, like the commander in chief and the generals basically yeah. need to agree on. And you can't have a bunch of people going, but I've got some ideas for how we might do <laughs> like that would just be chaotic. It wouldn't work. And so yeah. it has to be maximally hierarchical. And right. that is what allows shit to get done by the military, right. whether, whether that's good or bad stuff that, right. that allows it to get done. Right. Right. Yeah. In fact, in fact, a former military officer that I worked with at one point, we had repeated conversations, Christian leader. He couldn't, he would say to me, Steve, I don't understand how you and your wife would ever make decisions. Cause as I understand it, you have an egalitarian marriage and, so I don't, I'm not clear how, when there's a difference, how, how do you decide anything? Cause don't you have to have <laughs> someone who casts the deciding vote? And I would say, no, we do get some stuff done and no, you don't have to do that. But yeah. you know, if, if you have a real hierarchical worldview about differences, then you don't necessarily need a lot of this differentiation capacity and it may not make sense to you. But if you yield the hierarchy in certain relationships, you will need more of this differentiation stuff. You could call it something else, but you're going to need some of that if you're not using power to determine all the decision making. So then families can also be kind of under differentiated, right? Like you can have a family system where there is a tacit, it could be unspoken. I guess it could be spoken of like, hey, we're all for one, one for all. And, you know, that would lead to what we used to call codependence and what we now call enmeshment, right, of like being too identified with family members such that you end up kind of harming each other in the process, even if you don't mean to. Mm -hmm. Again, you don't have to get too personal if you don't want to about solving the family, healing the family splits. But I could imagine if your family was low on differentiation, that could lead to you feeling like that's your responsibility, And for me, with my Christianity example, to some degree, I was identifying myself with this broader multi-billion person tradition that I'm getting over my skis thinking that I I am more connected to it and responsible Mm -hmm. for it than I obviously am. Of course, I can't do that. And it was hearing her words that sort of brought me out of that stupor, a little bit of a cave, Plato's cave moment for me in the microcosm. Well, yeah. I agree. And just to, you know, so that I'm not being idealistic in, in how I portray this, I certainly think the the pull of loyalty, the, the Hungarian family therapist, Ivan Bazerman Yinaj, used to talk about our unconscious loyalties. And so this desire to go back and sort of heal our family or to heal one's religion, like you were trying to do, mm-hmm. there's, there's a beauty to that unconscious loyalty, even if it's not exceedingly wise or feasible, right? But those pulls, when I'm working with clients and, and we become aware of those, I, I want to be respectful of that powerful loyalty pull. And on the flip side, differentiation, which can be a healthy move, especially over time, is not without its risks or costs. The therapist David Schnarch um, was famous for saying um, differentiation is what got Jesus killed because he differentiated from the, the the norms, the expectations, the demands yeah. um, of his social environment. And um, 
it, it led to murderous a murderous response, right? And and that happens to people too, right? That I, I was describing, and and you kind of noted it, uh, Sari, that I got this you know professional energy once I sort of differentiated. But there can be real costs and sacrifices to that. And um, depending on the feedback from one's system or the way it plays out, it can be quite dangerous to differentiate in, in certain contexts as a system may just not, not allow it, not allow you to get away with that. And even if, and even if it does is allowable, there's a certain loss to it at times that can be painful. So I see clients who sometimes do really powerful differentiation work in their, from their family of origin, and it comes with a kind of grief on its heels, uh, even if it was constructive in other ways. Lots of really cool stuff recently released and coming up on the Patreon feed. To join, head to patreon.com slash dancoke. That link is in the show notes. And patrons get access to what is now most months, three exclusive episodes per month. Sometimes that's like a half episode or a full version of an episode where the first part is on the main feed. But we've upped it from two a month uh, to be more content for patrons each month. You also have access to the patron-only Facebook group. And some of the recent episodes and upcoming ones are awesome. We've got Brandon Flannery discussing his uh, personal research into why people are leaving Christianity. We've got a most uh, the most recent Generation Gap Culture Hour with Tony Jones and Josh Gilbert and myself uh, was a lot of fun. We've got some stuff coming up about the psychology of Christian nationalism and maybe some uh, additional media response. Uh, there's some movies and uh, TV shows that I think are going to be getting some episodes here. I don't want to say too much yet in case plans change, but fun stuff coming up um, on the Patreon. So please consider joining patreon.com slash Dan Coke. So, Steve, I was listening to one of your lectures at, at Fuller this morning, and you were talking about A.W. Tozer. And I, I think it'd be interesting to bring him in as an example. He's a famous spiritual writer in the Christian tradition, 20th century. We're really familiar with the Mark Driscoll's and the, you know, Carl Lentz's of the world, this kind of obvious toxic version of narcissism in a Christian leader and, and disconnection from people, yeah. you know, pathological. But Tozer is a, is a trickier, kind of more subtle example. So can you tell us what we need to know about him and and we'll we'll tie it into all this stuff. Well, Tozer, for those of you who don't know, you know, among many evangelicals, especially those drawn to the more kind of pietistic forms of spirituality, with a real emphasis on intimacy with God, with God, a close personal relationship with God, sort personal of personal relationship God. with Jesus Christ, the, yeah. the number one buzzword of my childhood. Yeah. yeah, but especially the idea that you can get this sort of deep connection that that many of us who are from Christian backgrounds, of course, um, really long to. And yeah. so Tozer was probably one of the key writers in those evangelical spirituality circles of the 20th century. And his, his biographer noted the striking contrast that for thousands and thousands of people, Tozer was a key source in like how to know intimacy with God. 
And yet his wife and, and his children all testified that he was really impossible to get close to himself. So it sets up this, this sort of painful but important disjunct in terms of relational spirituality that asks the question, why is it that some people can um, at least self-report seeming to know tremendous intimacy with God, but they're really not able to connect with others. And he wasn't known for some, you know, um, big moral failures. Uh, as I understand it, it was sort of known that he wasn't good at pastoral care and that the the um, the other leaders in the church thought he should stay in his study and write sermons and books and that sort of thing, because if they let him out and, and got him close to people, he, he often was pretty insensitive. But um, it invites these questions about the relational disjuncts. And we all have, I think we all have uh, relational disjuncts in life. You know, any, we're all works in progress. But when we do see spiritual leaders where it's quite extreme, I think it's it's right to ask the questions. <laughs> what helps us understand these sorts of disjuncts with people who seem seem so spiritually mature in one sense, but then can't interpersonally or relationally um, have healthy connections with others. The the Buddhist John Wellwood, you know, coined the term spiritual bypass, which is a really interesting concept for ways that any of us might be susceptible to drawing on spirituality to sort of bypass dealing with yeah. pain, developmental disjuncts, various uh, deep deeper conflicts. And, and Wellwood said, you know, uh, Buddhism in particular shouldn't be used that way, and that we should integrate spirituality and psychology so that we can be uh, more, more, more whole human beings. You know, it's making me think of Jean Vanier as well, who, you know, after his death, uh, fairly, fairly traumatizing for me, at least as far as public figure traumas go, one of the only ones I've had, but was obviously now known for some pretty serious. Uh, sexual offenses with people under his spiritual direction care, mm. but also was known to be kind of a kind of a closed box personally mm. by people near him. And yet again, wrote, I mean, just stunningly really, I mean, was kind of my number one spiritual hero before mm. that scandal broke about closeness. I mean, his, his commentary on the gospel of John through the lens of essentially vulnerability and injury and repair completely changes how I read that gospel. And I don't know, it might be kind of ruined now for me forever. We'll see there's a lot of life left, but like, you know, that was a really stunning juxtaposition, but I'm wondering, and of course, neither of these men are my clients. I'm not going to diagnose them with anything, but like, I wonder if that, if that um, separation from other people, is a clue to what could cause this kind of a, you know, maybe cause some of the disjunction in Vanier himself. Tozer seemed to have escaped, you know, big scandals like that. Right. But I, I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I mean, a lot of the research we're doing this with these days on um, the formation and well-being of uh, religious leaders, as well as other helping professionals, therapists and chaplains uh, at Danielson, we're, we're putting a lot of work into that. And, I think that there's some, certainly some leaders who have tremendous talent, tremendous charisma, and 
can um, have quite a bit of a impact or success to a certain point, and maybe that masks some of these gaps in their relational and psychological development. But I, I also think sometimes the, the jobs themselves come with, with certain risks for an intensification of that. There, there's a lot of idealization, especially of, of faith leaders in some contexts. There can be a lot of isolation. It, it's a tough combination, both directions. And so I, I certainly have seen leaders who I think over time, whether, where they had some, some narcissism brewing before at a high level or just a moderate level, the, the job itself, you know, leads, leads to even more of that as there's this tremendous idealization that's, it's like a, a rock star type dynamic. And, and we see how that plays out sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Like some people want a shepherd, like Jesus is always talking about people like sheep in yeah. the gospels. And I'm the kind of person who doesn't really feel like much of a sheep, <laughs> you know, like at a personality level, like I've only got the healthy narcissism, of course, as we've established here. Today. <laughs> yeah, um, that's good. But, a healthy you know, <laughs> narcissistic libido. <laughs> yeah. I've just got, I've got a healthy narcissistic libido. You know, I am always the one who sort of volunteers to lead the group at jury duty. Like I'm the, I'm just naturally, <laughs> you know, in a post-apocalyptic situation, I would either become the leader or the person who really wanted to be the leader would kill me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right? So it would be one of those two things. But like people really often do want shepherds. And that's for any number of reasons. That can be a socioeconomic thing. It can be kind of economy of energy and time. They don't have time mm -hmm. to sort this stuff out for themselves in a way that I am, you know, personality-wise drawn yeah. to. Yeah. And if you're going to have a shepherd – you're going to have power. You're mm -hmm. going to have idealization like you're talking about there. Yeah. It's kind of like a, I like the sort of job hazard language of that because we, we would be wrong to entirely pathologize that as a function of the leader themselves and their flaws and all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's part of the individualism um, to kind of think it's all about that individual and not about the system or the community. The Jungian Robert Moore has a really good book a, a, a while back called Facing the Dragon, which is about spiritual grandiosity. And he's got this kind of haunting line in there that I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, for a religious leader who is up on the stage in the pulpit, being idealized by hundreds of people for whatever they say, once they step out of that pulpit, at some level, the anxiety is going to be so intense because they know they're not all that, that they're going to need to go back to their office and have a shot of whiskey or some pornography or something to get them back to their humanness. Mm -hmm. And that over time, those rituals of getting back in touch with one's humanness can get more and more destructive. And I don't think he's exonerating leaders of their choices at all, right. but he's just noting the systemic dynamics and the way for, again, it's sort of like the rock star dynamics. I don't know. I have no idea how anyone would, you know, succeed as a human being in those fields because there's so much, yeah. right, idealization and objectification that it just has to be psychically, psychologically um, toxic. Yeah, fame is a health hazard. It's a yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it goes the other way, too, obviously. It, it, uh, the idealization has a nasty underbelly, too, once once it goes. So it's these leaders also 
you know, dealing with a lot of devaluation and disappointment from people. My mind went to touring years, you know, so my band played 800 shows um, over a six or seven year period. And, you know, I, I have a, I get a little sense of that kind of high, like, I felt really good when we did an in-person You Have Permission event back in the late winter, and I enjoy occasional in-person interactions with people because of the podcast. But it's been interesting that the the normal experience of a pastor of a successful congregation, and like if this podcast could be mapped onto churches compared to other faith podcasts, it would be a successful little congregation. Like I would experience a weekly wave of, you know, maybe not euphoria, but certainly approval, gratitude. I would see it in body language and facial expressions. People would come talk to me afterward. It's interesting to be separated from that by doing it digitally. I think it's mostly healthy to be separated from it by doing Mm -hmm. it digitally. It's my experience of it is much closer from my band days where Hmm. literally I, you know, especially the years where we were opening up for bigger bands, like 2007, 2008, 2009, I became accustomed to spending one hour of almost every day having one to 2000 people audibly cheering (laughs) for songs I had written that I performed with my friends in their city. And then at the end of every show meeting 30 of those people more if time allowed and, and occasionally being showed tattoos of my lyrics or being told stories of how the music got them through really difficult periods of their life. I mean, ego boosts like you cannot fucking believe. Uh, Gotta be hard to be humble under those circumstances. <laughs> yeah. And I was in my twenties, so I wasn't humble anyway, but like, you know, like, I am still kind of unpacking and and finding interesting connections between that experience and now my experience approaching 40. As as we record this, I turn 40 tomorrow. And I think that most of us, when we are thinking about leaders or rock stars, we don't really think about that context because it's not a part of the product that we actually consume by these people. We don't think about the sort of behind the scenes, but yeah, it'll do a number on you psychologically. And I think the uh, addiction in music performance is high, not least because of that cycle. First of all, you've got to be on at a certain time. So Mm -hmm. I got used to drinking whiskey before the shows because it would put me in the right mindset. And then I got used to drinking whiskey after the shows when it was time to go talk to people. And Mm -hmm. I'm fortunate to have never developed alcoholism, uh, but many Mm -hmm. friends did. And right. of course, it's a very common story with that or drug addiction on the road that that didn't happen for me. But but the patterns, I totally lived them and see them. And now I have new versions of that in my life that I have more awareness around various habits and, and you know, trying to fix an emotional state or come down from a high or, you know, whatever, what have you. It's it is so interesting and such a big part of what creates these larger than life personalities. I think for the leaders who have been in that, like the, I'm thinking now religious leaders, because I've worked with a lot of those folks, but other kinds of leaders too. It's, it's hard for them to shift out of the narcissism that induces. And, and it really can be hard for the communities to, because they can, there, there can be a, um, a sort of an addictive cycle to, to that sort of getting shepherded is the way you put it, Dan, um, that uh, the assumption remains if one leader fails, that we, we just need to pick again and 
you know, get a better leader or else the disappointment is so great. People um, go into kind of a self-protective shell and withdraw from any hopes and dreams. So it's a, it's a, it's a tricky pattern for sure. This is a little bit of a pivot, but when we started talking about this, it gave me a little bit of like a, a theological sort of question slash anxiety about like talking about Tozer and like the validity of their personal encounters with God Mm. versus is the still small voice I'm encountering just me, (laughs) you know, because of the problem of blind spots and it not crossing over into your closest relationships, like with your children, like how could you be having encounters with something real with God and have that not be the case and have that not be bridge. And, you know, we can, I think what we've been discussing is some of the blame can go to this, these systems of, you know, getting validation from whatever can create these bypasses. But yeah, Yeah. I I wonder how you reflect on that. And maybe this connects to humility, you know, and having humility even about our own encounters with God or, I don't know. What, what do you think about that? I think that I think that's an important connection. I mean, we one of the studies we did at our clinic was to look at the spiritual and religious commitments of patients and how that was associated with their mental health. And um, David Payne ran that study. And we found that um, clients who didn't have a moderate level of humility or higher, it was actually a negative relationship between religious commitment and mental health. And and the relationship changed once you got to moderate humility. So there's something very important and protective about that virtue to help with the kind of stuff you're talking about. That for me to sense a connection to the sacred in some way could be tremendously helpful. But from a relational spirituality perspective, part of the reason I'm so interested in relational spirituality is I really, I really am most interested in how spirituality can enhance our experiences of relationship and and not not in in, again in some passive way where like just because i'm having an effective meditative practice i get along with everybody i don't mean it like that spirituality's gotten people in a lot of good trouble uh for social justice reasons as well and but over time overall i'm most interested in how spirituality can can help us have healthy relationships so if someone like Tozer, I mean, I don't, I didn't know Tozer, I'm reading off the biography, but a, a case like that where someone seems to have a very committed spiritual life and practice and, and there's an intensity to it. And over time, it doesn't help them be a better parent or a better partner yeah. or a better friend, then I think that's suspect. I mean, every major spiritual religious tradition does suggest spirituality you know, it's it's not a solution to every human problem necessarily, but it should help us be better in relationships. And if it's not, then I think there's reason to wonder about it. And, and sometimes uh, I do think spirituality can serve dissociative purposes to help us survive. You know, someone has been through trauma and their spirituality has a heavy kind of dissociative aspect to it. And I, mm. I think that sometimes is protective for a period of time, but that's yeah, not a, a short time. Yeah. That's, that's not a, a good long-term developmental strategy. Right. You've mentioned your lab a couple of times and earlier you were talking about findings around what makes healthy spiritual leaders. Is it, can you measure 
sort of someone's healthy relationships with people in their lives? Is that one of the sort of variables that you guys have studied around spiritual leaders? Yeah. So if you look at, you know, psychology is um, largely about individual differences and trying to understand what, when you look at a group of people, differentiate some people. And so in our relational spirituality model, we've highlighted the importance of some key relational, emotional, developmental themes and, and capacities. And um, the security of attachment is one tradition we draw on, and we've measured that. And looking at specifically religious leaders, that, you know, uh, security of attachment is a pretty good predictor of a lot of outcomes, tends to be salutary. Differentiation of self, back to the differentiation term, we, we use assessments of that. And both of those tend to help account for differences in religious leaders in terms of things like mental health, relational capacities, actually intercultural diversity um, strengths as well. So, which makes it kind of interesting to ask if we're talking about relational abilities, there's kind of the re the relational ability to relate well to those you're close to. And then there's also the relational capacities to relate well across differences with people you may not have as much in common with or, or that you may have significant differences from. And so um, our research suggests that a couple of those relational development systems, attachment and differentiation are pretty important for understanding how that stuff works out. What I kind of want to get to is like, what from your research are the red flags and green flags for spiritual leaders? But what's interesting is whether or not a pastor has secure attachment or is differentiated, this is not going to be obvious. It's not even, it wouldn't even be obvious to me, someone trained in psychology, you know, from the outside to see if I could tell if this guy's got secure attachment or not. Are any of the green flags, the sort of healthy things, like, are they observable from outside? Like, are there things that people could be looking for um, that are in the sermon text or in their habits or, you know what I mean? Like sort of publicly viewable or knowable things that could put someone at ease that this mm. person is likely to be a healthy spiritual leader. So you, when you say publicly observable, Dan, you mean like when you're sitting in the congregation? Yeah, it just means somebody who are listening to a podcast or listening, watching a sermon, you know, what anybody that is putting themselves in sort of a, a public role in a, in a spiritual world where the average person consuming what they are making can, can tell, like can, can get some indication. I think that's hard. Um, my, my answer is probably kind of a, a yes and no. I think that actually some leaders are really good at, at bullshitting. And right. so I think that it's possible that some people are just really verbally fluent and there's a, a kind of a humble charisma thing that is self-effacing and, and it may not be easy to pick it up. Um, so, so one answer I would give is I'm cautious about how easy it is to observe that stuff. It's really, you know, as a therapist, I've found it's important to know what the people around the leader would say about them, kind of like the Tozer case. What would their partner say? What would their kids mm. say? What would those who work closely with them? Because that's the stuff that's harder harder to fool. I mean, you yeah. could, you could find cases where people were pretty fooled or, or they were in a kind of a dissociative fog themselves and were going along with it. 
But but some of these leaders, what you really notice over time is they have a lot of conflict with people they work closely with and people that they live with. And that isn't easy to gloss over over time. So that's really one of your best data sources is not their sermon, but what the people that are around them would would say about them, right? At a certain level, I guess I'm I'm more comfortable when I hear a leader who can acknowledge some of the complexity of life and there's some nuancing to their perspective and they don't seem to just be demonizing some group. They're not overly self-effacing, but they're not seeming to toot their own horn all the time. I mean, there's some of those things that sound sound a little better than, than some of the alternatives. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's 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 most important to know what are the people that work with them and are close to them say about what it's like to to be in relationship with them. And I think the the really wise leaders that understand a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, they they build in certain checks and balances into their life where they do keep themselves close to some people who will be really honest with them. They do build relationships with people who are different than them. They do nurture their closest relationships, and um, those those are really smart strategies for for anybody in life. But I think for leaders with some of the risks we've been talking about, the absence of those um, is pretty dangerous. I just wanted to name that, like, what's occupying our imagination around this topic and the examples so far. We're talking about men Oh, quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> and I just wondered, I wanted to like open up to see if there was anything in terms of gender difference in this topic that is worth discussing in terms of the, the research, because even a lot of these phrases provoked me to think about anecdotal evidence in my life. And, you know, part of my story is being part of a church plant where I was in leadership, but most of the members were complementarian in their theology and how complicated that got. And then the, the lead pastor stepping down and um, because of some unhealthy stuff in his life. And, and, you know, you think of even just the phrase like relational spirituality, like that seems like something that women are better at just stereotypically, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but also like enmeshment, it seems like women might be more, more likely to become more enmeshed but I don't know if that's true. That's just anecdotal from my life. So I wondered, Stephen, if you had any comments on, on that. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff there. Sorry, that's great stuff. So let me start with the relational thing. So, you know, by relational spirituality in, in our approach at Danielson, we really mean to tune into the full gamut of relational stuff that's part of spirituality. So, yeah, there's probably a lot of evidence that suggests women have taking responsibility for tuning into relational dynamics more, but that doesn't always benefit women. And so we mean relational in tuning into all the kinds of relationality that happen in, in spiritual settings from sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And so people can have a relational style that is using a lot of cutoff, a lot of distancing, a lot of narcissism, right? That's, that is a relational style. Well, and some some connection, as you suggested, isn't always great if it becomes overly enmeshed or <laughs> if there's unhealthy dynamics that are part of it. Now, the, the stuff about leaders and gender is really, and narcissism is really interesting. There's 
There is some evidence, pretty good evidence that men on average, you know, tend to score higher in grandiose forms of narcissism, which are uh, really kind of the stereotypical form that many people think of putting oneself forward, being arrogant, haughty, all of that sort of stuff. So there's kind of a clear gender difference. Although as a clinician, you could find women who struggle with that sort of grandiose form of narcissism. It's less statistically frequent. The vulnerable form of narcissism, which is less about being so arrogant, haughty, grandiose, it's more um, rooted in some deep idealization struggles. And so the literature in narcissism, as I read it, suggests vulnerable narcissism is about equal among men and women identified folks. And so that's a more even thing. Now, what gets kind of interesting in the humility religious leaders research we've done is we've done um, some qualitative research where we've asked religious leaders about their experiences around humility, factors that have facilitated it, challenges, which was really interesting. And, And we had a lot of women in our research who described some of the the kind of catch-22 or double-bind stuff in this terrain, where on the one hand, they didn't all name it quite the same way, but here's some of what they described. On the one hand, if you're a faith leader, you are kind of supposed to put yourself forward and seem really confident and take command. And so women who um, don't have that style can sometimes face critique, right? There's there's also the r- racial dynamics that can play that way. On the other hand, women in our research also noted that if they do try to put themselves forward or express strong opinions, they can get penalized for that. So so it was really interesting to to hear the double binds, which is probably part of what you were describing in some way, sorry, that... Um, it's it's hard for women to win on this stuff. And and Daryl Van Tongren's research around and with, with some of his colleagues around gender and humility shows men can get more credit for like a little appearance of humility because we're so darn narcissistic a lot of the time. <laughs> and uh, women can get criticized sort of either way, showing a little too much opinion or leading with a little too much humility. So there's some pretty difficult gender dynamics, as I guess you were referencing in all of this. Yeah, there's some strong dynamics with the cultural conditions surrounding gender. The Barbie movie point. (laughs) I was just going to say that it's impossible to be a woman Barbie speech. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, I wondered if you could quickly... So, like you were saying, distinguishing types of narcissism. Can you say a few qualities of a vulnerable narcissist? I'm not sure if like the average listener would understand that. Yeah, they tend to struggle with, um, I mean, we can all long to idealize certain people, but they, they often have a pretty intense form of that. So they would like to be sort of a disciple of some powerful, prestigious, uber-talented person. And they're not looking to sort of grab the microphone themselves. They just want to be on the stage with that person. And it comes with a certain vulnerability to um, to disappointment, to envy, to dysphoria, a kind of emptiness that happens uh, when that's not working out. <laughs> Either that person they want to idealize doesn't want them on stage or they get on stage for a while and it 
doesn't work out. Oof. And so they can they can move towards a lot of depression, shame reactions. If there's any sense of rejection from the yeah, they, person. Yeah, they they yeah. they they work with a lot of sort of fear that that, that rejection is going to happen and it's a fair amount of emptiness when it does. Oh. That yeah. dynamic sounds very common in churches. I've... Oh yeah. 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 yeah, a couple a couple thoughts there. So that emptiness of self, that's the as I understand it clinically, that's the through line between the two types of narcissism you're talking about, right? So the the Driscolls of the world theoretically <laughs> would be very empty inside and and need this big display and to amass as much fame and power and and influence or whatever right. to to fill that to fill that right. hole this sort of vulnerable narcissism you're talking about they don't want to be the figurehead but they want to be associated with the figurehead and still be perceived as part of the important team or the important project I think about mm -hmm. kind of the enablers of many cult leaders over the years, right? Absolutely. Who yeah. are often women. And I, again, that's anecdotal, but like where maybe we would as a society accept a woman in that role more readily than in the guru role, yeah. which we'd prefer to be a male. Um, yeah. And, and, so, I mean, is that all kind of checking the right boxes there? Steve? Right, right. I think I think both types of narcissism can can actually have an, a certain emptiness down deep, but the the grandiose narcissist will often get very rageful and attacking when you challenge them, and the more vulnerable one might also be angry, but there's a kind of a deep sadness that's part of their emptiness and and sh and more intense mm -hmm. shame. And so they're they're less likely to sort of attack um, and and more to kind of withdraw into themselves and mm. and feel quite depressed. So there's kind of some different. Stephen Mitchell, the great the late psychoanalyst, was really brilliant about some different strategies therapeutically for <clears throat> the two types. And and they're not pure types. It's not like they can't be somewhat mixed. But I do think there's somewhat different implications for what ends up being helpful. Or the pathway to humility, that'd be another word for the pathway to humility for those two types is somewhat different. I want to be very careful here to not victim blame or have any hint of that. But I wonder, given the complementarian nature of most of Western Christianity that limits the roles of what women can do publicly, I'm, I'm wondering about pastor's wives or other types of sort of teachers or whatever, like, is there basically, will a lot of women end up slotting in to those leadership roles who are the more, if they're narcissistic, who are the more vulnerable type, because they'll get batted out of the process if they are the the other type, they just will be Absolutely. removed and then they'll have to go do something else and become a leader in finance or something, because they're not going to be yeah. able to do it in the church, but they might be able to do that. And what, I don't know if, if there's any research about that, or if this is just kind of more theoretical, but I'm, I'm curious about that dynamic. I think it's a good theory, Dan. I, I don't know of research that necessarily supports that, but I think you're right. The, the grandiosity um, would not be tolerated and there can be kind of this well of idealization and hooking up to someone I mean, and really, theologically speaking, it's a kind of idolatry that we're all susceptible to because um, we all could have hopes to 
be delivered from all of our problems through something that's other than God, right? That's really what theologically idolatry is. So, so I think idealization is is not all bad, but when it becomes of that dynamic, it's like an, a, an addiction. As we kind of wrap up here, you know, we started our conversation really talking about individuals like ourselves and people kind of going through their own lives. We sort of shifted in the latter half to talking about leaders and public figures. You could draw on either on either of those sort of streams of thought. But where are you hopeful? You know, like like where in what areas or people doing what kinds of activities, asking themselves what kinds of questions make you feel hopeful, either at the individual level or the leadership level? Like where where are we moving towards growth? <laughs> That's great. Great question. Because we have talked about a lot of problems through this and a lot of suffering. And so, yeah, you know, I'm I'm a parent of two emerging adults, and I see both in in their lives and in their in many of and in their generation, many of their cohorts, a real embrace of diversity, um, an ability to, while facing the existential crises of climate change and various things that can move towards despair, a willingness to really ask how we can make for a better world. And so I'm I'm encouraged by the commitments I see towards diversity and justice and honesty uh, about realities in life. So I guess I, I see and teaching in a university, I get exposed to um, a lot of folks that are are trying to make a positive difference. And so I'm I'm really encouraged by uh, when you turn on the news and you see so much negativity and polarization and the country coming apart, it's it's actually nice to see so many people that are trying to cross differences, grow, build connections. I'm quite moved by our our folks in our helping professions, though even though we were talking about some of the risks and dangers of leaders, we have this big project funded by the Peel Foundation to provide formation resources to helping professionals, chaplains, clergy, therapists. And um, I'm struck how many are looking for places to connect. We have a a free program through Danielson called Chrysalis that um, allows folks to connect with one another about the stress and, and trauma of the work. And so I'm regularly encouraged by how many people are doing just incredibly challenging work and they're not looking for some big pat on the back or a bunch of resources for themselves, but they're also looking to connect and support other people who are doing that work. And so I find being plugged into that quite um, quite inspiring. Uh, and many people are really in these fields are really under resourced, but they just do tremendously good work. And I think we need to be more thoughtful about how and in what ways to support them best, because. Um, I think our current approach to that isn't terribly sustainable, but if you can offer places even for short-term connection with people who will be honest about life, it looks like the demand is pretty high for that. You know, It's not that people don't want that. They, they want to get the kind of connection that helps them stay on the front lines. So I find that really inspiring. <laughs> I do see lots of people that want to bridge these disciplinary differences we we talked about at the start, you know, people that want to find out what are the connections between theology and psychology or religion and science. And um, so certainly at, at um, our university, but 
there's various pockets of it. And so I'm, I'm encouraged when I see that. And, and sometimes I, I get to travel into spaces where people didn't think they were interested in that. Um, I mean, I, as a recovering evangelical still get to go into kind of evangelical spaces at times to do a little bit of psychology stuff. And sometimes in those spaces, people look like they're not sure what to make of the shrink in, in the room. But I find that most people, will open up to some new ideas if you um if you take them seriously and you talk about real problems so so i'm encouraged by people who i see get interested in theology when they didn't think so because they were a psychologist who was mad at religion or um a conservative christian pastor who didn't really think he wanted to look into psychology but now you know, after you spend a few hours with usually him, you know, uh, he is a little bit more open. So I'm encouraged by that sort of movement I see. But that isn't, like I said, that isn't the stuff that usually is on the news at night. And to tie it all the way back to the beginning of sort of the limits of our control and not spinning our wheels, that the humility of, of knowing what we can and can't have an effect on, if you can pair those two, you know, if you can come to a relatively accurate assessment of the limits of your own control mm-hmm. and where you're effective and then combine that with a genuine desire for any of these sort of peacemaking or healthy relationship, like any of that stuff. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a powerful engine for growth, for integration, for differentiation, right? Yeah. Kind of bringing in some of these concepts that we've talked about. Yeah, that's right. I agree, Dan. That is kind of what differentiation is, is still putting ourselves, our whole selves out there with a recognition that um, what we offer in a particular context may or may not work. It may or may not be received. I mean, that David Schnarch describes that as integrity, right? The, the willingness mm. to move from my deepest values, my whole self, and sort of accept that um, I can't control what happens on the other side of that. And I think that that is the best stuff of spirituality. And it's some of the the best leaders have heavy doses of that. And families and communities that are growing tend to find their way towards that. Let's be honest about life. Let's get in touch with our core values. Let's try to accept what we can't control about the outcomes and put all that together. In the psychology spheres, are you seeing more openness or about the same or less to thinking about spirituality as an important dimension of human health? Good question. Yeah, I think, um, I, I think there is a lot more openness. I mean, when I started out in the field, spirituality and religion was, was really definitely a a side topic, hardly a topic in the mental health field, but you know, when I do continuing ed workshops or, or you know, present research places, APA, some of the big conventions and stuff, people um, are interested. And there's now lots of books and resources available. And you can still find plenty of mental health professionals who, who um, maybe are not interested or even somewhat negative. But, but I really think there's been a, a sea change in the field and growing awareness that this is a part of human diversity. It's a part of strengths that people can bring to life. It's a part of the suffering too, that people have experienced. So I think it's really um, an exciting time to be engaging spirituality and religion in the mental health field. And so I'm, I'm quite encouraged 
by it. But it's kind of interesting when you go and you get to talk deeply with clinicians. There's anytime we do a, a workshop, there'll be a clinician who's like, okay, here's my question. How do I integrate like attachment and spiritual development and kind of complex trauma? That'll be one of the questions you get. And then the next question will be, this could be like four hours into the workshop, could be, are you saying it's okay to ask clients about their spirituality? Like those would be, <laughs> and so you get folks who are trying to decide if it's like, and, and they're four hours in and they're like, that's their question. Yeah. And then you get people that are putting together complex stuff and that yeah. that's what it's like. So there's still a need for some kind of basic introductions and there's wow. people that are really doing high level integration. So that's kind of fun in a way, but. Well, now I'm excited for the next 30 years of my career. Thank you for that, Steve. Um, hey, this was for... super fun. I had no idea what I was getting into with you two. This was really, this was really fun. Hey, we're a party. We're a digital party uh, completely separated from the effects that our conversations have on people by a digital wall. Thank you so much, man. What an incredible conversation. Uh, wow. That was super enjoyable. Where would you like people to find your work online, especially those who are not academics kind of with, uh, you know, accounts for reading all your peer reviewed papers? <laughs> we have a fair number of resources at our Danielson website, Danielson Institute website. So that's probably cool. the best place to go where we try to make people aware of some of the stuff we're doing. And some of it Great. would sound academic or professional, but I think people could track some of it, uh, even if they're not into that. So Okay, awesome, man. Thank you so much for your continued work. Sari, thanks for being a part of this conversation too. Yeah, Fantastic. Thanks, Sari. Yeah, super fun. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Sari. Take care. Take care, Steve. Bye.